DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this episode with Archbishop Lucas, we continue our conversation on why baptism matters. We'll look at other elements of the rite, including the rite of minor exorcism, the blessings of the water, the profession of faith, the renewal of baptismal promises, and the action of baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and why that Trinitarian formula matters. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, Baptism constitutes the foundation of communion among all Christians, including those who are not yet in full communion with the Catholic Church. For men who believe in Christ and have been properly baptized are put in some, though imperfect, communion with the Catholic Church. Justified by faith in baptism, they are incorporated into Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians, and with good reason are accepted as brothers by the children of the Catholic Church. Baptism, therefore, constitutes the sacramental bond of unity existing among all through it are reborn. Unquote. We now continue our conversation with Archbishop George Lucas. Archbishop, the next movement in the baptismal rite is one that it's part of the right, and it's yet a term that could seem frightening, but actually, as you said, it's about liberation. And it's the prayer of exorcism. It's a prayer that it comes before the anointing at baptism. What would you like to help people to understand about that particular action? Uh, Hollywood has given the term exorcism a, kind of a, a fantastic reputation. At the same time, it's um, the ancient experience uh, in our Catholic faith that we need to be liberated through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That liberation is experienced by us in and through the sacraments. Because of original sin and the effects of original sin, we're trapped. And we're trapped to a puny life in this world and our ability to come to God and our ability to experience the, the full life, which we have been created, is taken away from us. You know, that we just don't have that ability on, on our own. And so God reaches down to us in the trap, in the darkness, into which we have been born, as we're born into a human race that, that's broken and tainted by sin. And so there's the prayer on the part of the church uh, that expresses this liberation. 
from the influence of the devil, from the darkness, from the trap of sin, the binding of the effects of sin. There's lots of ways to, to speak about it. You know, it, it makes a little less sense, I think, on, this, on the face of it when we have an exorcism for an infant in this very simple ceremony. So we don't want to in any way associate the person with the demonic, uh, literally, or to, to think that, that somehow the child or even an adult is evil. God has created us his own image. Uh, he loves what he has created, so he looks at us and loves us and sees the good that is there. But we do have the, the reality of, of being uh, broken and trapped in the effects of sin. And the, the simple prayer, really, of liberation of, of exorcism is part of the baptismal rite. So it's a reminder. It's, it's more obvious in the sort of protracted rite of, uh, of initiation at the Easter Vigil, but it, it's, there's hints of it in the simpler rite of the, the baptism of, of an infant. It, it's important to see that something's changing and that the old order is over, and something new is beginning, opening for us in a significant way. So without the power of God's grace, beginning in baptism, we would be more in the hands of the thrall of the the evil one. And that is not be the end of the story for us. And it's not just a foregone conclusion that the devil will have his way with us for being liberated from that fate. It's actually quite beautiful, isn't it? Because we've just invoked the prayer of the universal church and all the angels and all the saints and the power to be able, as you said, to liberate and to protect. And nothing can stand against that. I mean, there should be a great deal of joy, actually, instead of fear. Right. I agree. For a moment, we, you might say we look in two directions and two different kingdoms. We look at the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We have just invoked the saints and we hear them all cheering us on and inviting us ahead. We think of the glory that, that's theirs. We look back at the darkness, the limitation, the evil that's part of, the, of that kingdom, and there really is a, a choice. And, of course, in, on the part of, of an adult who's being baptized, that person makes that choice at this moment. I want to step out of the darkness and into the light at the invitation of God with the, with the help of God's grace. Once again, this is why belonging, being brought into this full communion of the church, of the mystical body, because you're not alone. This isn't an act of isolation. Why not allow all of us to journey with you, even as you're beginning to pull yourself or allow Christ to pull you out of that darkness. It's one of the fundamental differences of those two kingdoms. We we might say the the saving mission of Jesus could be characterized in the word communion. Uh, We talk about the communion of saints, but we we are, through baptism, incorporated into the body of Christ. We share the life of the Trinity. I mean, it's just filled with this rich sense of communion. The the characteristic of the, the kingdom of darkness is isolation and fear and finding, you know, lack of real freedom. The, the work of, of the devil is always isolation, to separate us from God, from, from one another, to diminish our sense of our own goodness and power and, and freedom. It is a movement from isolation to communion, from a binding to a, a liberation. It's all towards the good. And the rite of baptism tries in every way, through word and ritual and symbol to uh, help us see that, that important change of moving from one place to, to another. Well, and that movement ultimately takes us to the water. And the blessing of the baptismal waters, once again, very dramatic moment in a celebration at an Easter vigil, for example, in any parish, is that blessing of the water. But it's the same blessing that will take place maybe on a Sunday in a, in a quiet way, even in the local church, as a child's being brought in. It's first the symbol of the water, but then the power, the blessing. You could really ponder that for quite a while, couldn't you? Mm -hmm. 
it, it's a beautiful uh, prayer invocation, really. And I would encourage anybody who has the time to look it up and use it as a kind of a prayer of meditation or, or reflection. As we will see in the other sacraments, we notice it at the Mass, for example, there's a, a calling down of the Holy Spirit. Uh, here, in this case, on the water, the, what we'll use for the baptism, but just sort of on the occasion, you know, on this action that, that's being performed. So we know that we encounter the risen Jesus in, in the celebration of the sacraments through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit living in the church and acting through the church's ministers that gives the power, gives the force, the, the change through the celebration of the, of the sacraments. So it's an essential part of the sacrament. It's a moment to reflect that we're, this is an action of the church. The Holy Spirit is alive in the church, working through the minister of, of baptism. The prayer of blessing also helps us recall how God has used the gift of water, which he's created in the history of salvation in different ways to, to liberate his people. Water, as we know, and the scriptures are reflective of this, as is this prayer, the water can be very destructive. But it's also necessary for life, and it's life-giving, it's refreshing. We recall sometimes in the history of God's people in the Old Testament how water both destroyed evil but um, delivered them for good and for life. We think of the, the time of the Great Flood and how the, the water destroyed evil on the earth but also carried the Noah and, and the remnants of life, you know, to, so that life could be reestablished on the earth. We think of, in particular of the liberation of God's people at the Red Sea, how the water swallowed up the Egyptians who were pursuing them and became the pathway for deliverance for them. So all of those incidents in salvation history and the history of our ancestors remind us, help us think about what's happening in an even more perfect and powerful way at the time of baptism. Yeah, that action you just described of passing through the waters and destroying the enemy, we just talked about that when we talked about the exorcism. Of essentially, that person's about to enter into those waters and come out new. They've not only been protected against something, but they've also been born into something, haven't they? That's true. So it's illustrated and repeated in, in many different ways so that we hope we get the point. Pardon me, God's making it happen, of course. But it's better for us to understand it as much as we can. And as we do the invocation, as we ask the Holy Spirit to, you might say, invade the waters of baptism, then we're confident that when someone is washed in those waters, immersed in those waters, they're going to get more than wet. Sounds kind of crass, but, you know, something much more profound will be happening. They will get wet for sure. But the, but that this water has a power that's being invaded by the Holy Spirit of, uh, to affect something significant as we have seen God affect in, at various moments in salvation history. This is an essential moment in the life of this person becoming a member of the, of the church, and, and God acts very powerfully on that person's behalf through the real water, which now has a powerful spiritual significance. That's the same water, is it not, that we will bless ourselves with as we enter into churches every time we... we it can be. In? I mean, it's, it's not necessarily from the font. Sometimes it is. Uh-huh. But we have another blessing for holy water, but it recalls baptism. So that's, you're, you're very right to connect them. The... the custom we have of having holy water available when we come into the church is a way of, of our being reminded that we have been baptized. And we sign ourselves as we were signed with the Trinity at the, at the time of, of baptism. As I said earlier, baptism is what we are. Baptized is what we are. Baptism was an, an event, certainly, but that uh, life of baptism continues. The church has such a venerable tradition of the blessing, the blessing of objects. There's nothing, you know, when you uh, receive a medal, 
uh, something that's or a rosary, or we have holy water. We might ask the priest to bless water that we might bring into our home. In the case of baptism, the water being blessed and then poured on the individual, or the individual being immersed in it, something's actually being effected at, at that moment. That sacramental action is different in kind and in quality, we might say, from our blessing ourselves with holy water or, or praying the rosary. Those actions using sacramentals, as we call them in our church, they certainly complement and reinforce the life of faith in the baptized. But it, the sacramental rituals have, have a particular power and significance beyond anything else in the church. You had mentioned that faith and the next action that will happen after that, praying over the, the water, the, the blessing that occurs there, is the renewal of those baptismal promises. There were, and maybe in this case for the parents, but in the Easter Vigil, it becomes for the whole community. For those who are being brought into the churches, it's a very significant action because it's a rejection, but then also an acceptance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's important to say we, most of us, our whole through our life, experience it as a renewal. But for it to be a renewal, it has to happen the first time. So at baptism, it's the first time. So parents and godparents renew their own promises, but they do it in the name of the one who's being baptized. And an adult answers those questions, makes those promises at his or her own behalf for the very first time. Then, often, the community is invited to renew our own baptismal commitment, way again of reminding us that that was not just an event or something that was said once or we signed off on at one point, but that it's, it's our ongoing commitment and belief. Do you, do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? That, in a very real way, is an examination of conscience, one that ideally we should be engaging ourselves in it throughout the day and every day of our life. I would say maybe more it's a statement of intention. At, at the time of baptism, you know, our intention is to turn away from sin and Satan and turn towards the life of the Trinity and the life of the church and to accept that and to, to desire it. But I think, as you say, it is a good thing to do when we, as we think of it, but at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, to renew that intention, to reject those things that are worldly, that are bind us, that are evil, deadly in some way, spiritually, and to recommit ourselves to live as God invites us to as his beloved sons and daughters. Yeah, because immediately following that, then you make a statement about what you believe. It becomes, it's our creed. We have several different types of creeds that the Nicene Creed, of course, is the one we will again declare at the Sunday liturgies that we enter into. But the creed, the statement of who we are, that integrity, that's important for us to take that very seriously. Well, we often call the baptismal promises are really a, it's a rejection first of evil, but then certainly a profession of faith of our belief in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our belief in, the, in our life in the church. At the time of baptism, it's usually put in the form of questions. The one to be baptized or parents or godparents answer the questions. We all do this together on Easter when we renew our, our profession of faith. And I always enjoy it. It's one of the times when, as a celebrant of the Mass, you get to ask questions to the congregation and you wait for them to answer. So they're not rhetorical questions. You know, do you believe in God the Father? But so we respond, we hope, not just in a mechanical way. We know the answer that's expected, but it's an opportunity really to renew that intention to be a member of God's family at his invitation and then to profess our faith that, that God is God and I'm now a member of God's family, but I'm, I'm not God. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. 
Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I think for some, it it might be easier to say, I believe I do in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to matters of the church, that's the time we need to be really reflective and say, I do believe this and live it. And that can be a challenge. And not to do it as something that is, I just threw out the statement. Because you are professing it essentially to your brothers and sisters, to a, a community of people. It's important that if we do struggle, we should seek out those answers and try to come to a resolution, shouldn't we? We profess our faith in the church as God's family. You know, it's, it's God's plan for us that we live out our baptismal vocation in the context of the church. The church is, has been established because there's sin. And the church is made up of sinners. And so our experience of life in the church is far from perfect on most days. But you're right to take seriously this claiming the church as our mother, as our home, 
should lead us to a sense of responsibility for helping to make it the best church that we can, knowing that we can't control everybody else, but that we won't really be able to experience the life of, of baptism fully without a strong communion and life in the church. The, the next moment to come is probably one of the most exciting. And I say that very seriously because if you've ever been to an Easter vigil, you will watch people practically stand on top of pews almost to be able to watch the moment. But also, even at a baptism of a child, the family all wants to gather and witness the moment when the water is poured over either the child or the adult's head and the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It evokes an unexpected enthusiasm, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, fun to hear you describe that because you, I can picture that. Having seen it many times, we do strain to see that moment because it's a moment that makes all the difference in the life of, of that person. And there's church, we, we know that instinctively, even if we can't always explain it very well. The moment when the water, which has been invaded, we might say, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the action of the minister of baptism through the saying of of the words, that person now comes from the darkness into the light and becomes, at that moment, a a member of God's holy people, member of the communion of saints. I think that really highlights what you said earlier about the symbolic action, that yes, it's a symbol, but it's so much more. And it's almost our hearts know it. I mean, there's a movement that happens for us, even though we can't explain it. That, that enthusiasm, that joy, that anticipation, it just pops out of our hearts, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the essential uh, moment of baptism and in, in an emergency. This is all we need. But all the other prayers and symbolic actions uh, lead us to a deeper understanding of, of what is happening at that moment, whether I'm the one being baptized or I'm performing the baptism or witnessing. So there are a number of other symbolic actions that help shore this up, we might say, in terms of our experience in the celebration of the sacrament. But, but this is the pivotal moment. And again, it's we have this very special understanding in the church of symbolic action. And when it's a symbolic action that's animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we never say it's just a symbol. It's a symbol, all right, because it's something that we can see and feel, but it draws us into a, an understanding of the deeper reality. And in the case of the sacraments, the symbolic action makes it happen, we might say, because God has committed himself to, to that. In that, in those particular circumstances, the invocation, the the prayer that the especially for the presider of the sacrament, whether it's the bishop or it's the priest or it's the deacon, that you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That Trinitarian formula, essentially. I don't. I when you say formula, it almost. I don't need to trivialize it, but it, it it's all in those words, isn't it? We understand it? that it's necessary for a valid baptism, if we want to say that, that the person be baptized with water in the name of persons of the Trinity name, so in the name of the Father and, and of the Son and, and of the Holy Spirit. We want to be clear about where the power of the sacrament comes from and who, whose children we are now, the, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed to us personally and, and clearly, definitively in the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are, have been, I, I suppose, you call it tinkering uh, opportunities, or people have seen, they thought, some benefit in tinkering with the formula or, or with the way the baptism is celebrated over the years. But we have held to this naming of the Trinity, and it's rooted in Scripture, it's rooted in the commission of Jesus to create disciples and, and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in that baptism, it is important for us to remember that we were 
as Catholics that we're brought into the body of Christ. We're made members of the mystical body of Christ. And so in a very declarative way, we are Christians. We're Christians. That's our identity. Unfortunately, sometimes we may think, well, I'm a Catholic, and there others are Christians, as though somehow there's a split, and yet that should be clearly understood, shouldn't it? A couple things should be clearly understood. First of all, there's the mind of Jesus is that there's only one church, and, and so we can't think of more than one church. And to become a member of the church, the body of Christ, we must be baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So anyone who is baptized in that formula, the celebrant has the intention. It's a valid baptism, as we say it, which means that, in fact, you are a member of God's holy people. At the same time, our experience of, of the church in the world is that the communion of the church has been fractured. And so where we can't think of more than one church, we do see that, that the family has been pulled apart after baptism so that there is not full communion in every aspect of life. So it's true, if we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we can call ourselves Christians and should claim that, that name very joyfully. And there are other Christian communities that we know of in our neighborhoods, in our countries, maybe other members of our families are part of, of other Christian communions, but they are not necessarily in full communion with the, the Catholic Church. And that's, again, something that we need to appreciate and understand and respect. That's why in the RCIA, there are those, as you've taught us before in the past, the difference between the elect, those who had not been baptized, and how those who are coming into the church are considered candidates because they are being brought into that full communion. It's a very important distinction. And so the candidates, those who will come into full communion with the church at Easter, have, have been baptized validly. So they're already part of the family, we might say. And really, it's sort of an accommodation to include them in the RCIA because the, their initiation has begun. And their situation, their relationship to us is very different from uh, those who have not been baptized. And really, the RCIA is properly constructed for those who are unbaptized. But we, in our country, in our time, we have this reality of many other members of Christian communities who have been baptized validly who now want to come to full communion uh, with the church. So we, we want to make sure that we are clear that they have been baptized. And so they are all of those things that take place at baptism, the turning away from sin, the embracing of the kingdom of God, the profession of faith in the Trinity, that, that's all a reality for them already. So uh, they're very truly related to us in the communion of saints. At the same time, they have been growing in their understanding of, of what it means to be part of the church and what it means to share fully the sacramental life of the church. What the, It may take on various aspects. It may have to do with uh, obedience to the teaching authority the Lord has entrusted to the church. It may be, have to do with an understanding of the, the presence of, the, of Jesus in the Eucharist, power of the sacraments, the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament of penance. There are many things that may have not been yet their understanding or experience or belief, but now they have been growing in that belief and the desire to participate fully in the church's own understanding of herself and in, therefore in the sacraments. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on baptism in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, Along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. 
We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.